All right. I don't know what the hell happened. I can't even read now. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Age is a terrible thing. Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the essential shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor, and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. And I am joined by my partner, Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the Arleigh Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Security and International Studies. Elliot, welcome back. Well, thank you. It's uh, good to be back. I uh, I feel a little bit guilty, Eric, as uh, you have privately pointed out to me. I'm flitting around the world a lot, uh, and so I am uh, abandoning you periodically to run Shield of the Republic all on your own. I, I have to say, you seem to be doing a fairly competent job of it, though, so... Uh, well, it's uh, not the same without you. I will tell you that. Uh, well, that's that's nice. But um, but I'm very glad to have you back, especially from your travels recently, because you've been in places, uh, you know, uh, near the front line um, and uh, with frontline states. And so, you know, very interested to hear your impressions particularly kind of your sense of the counteroffensive and how it's going and what the prospects are. We're you know, about to be celebrating the, you know, the nation's birthday. And it is a moment to reflect on democracy and uh, its challengers. And we're facing one of the biggest challenges to democracy in a very long time. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think recently I reported uh, back on a trip to Finland, Estonia, and Poland after a brief interlude, which included travel elsewhere. I was back in Poland for a couple of days for a very small, uh, high-level discussion about, you know, what are the best ways of securing Ukrainian security in the future? And I I came, it was mainly Europeans, which I was very glad to see, and really primarily under European auspices, which I think is a very good thing, uh, because although we will have a large role to play, there still should be some limits to it. Um, I can talk about that. But then the really the most interesting part is I went on a, uh, from there, drove to uh, Kiev, uh, and on the way back, uh, came back through Lviv in Ukraine. And while we were there, I was giving a lecture at one of the, the Ukrainian universities, uh, the Mihola Academy, which is quite an old institution. And then met with uh, some very senior people in the foreign ministry, defense ministry, and in the intelligence world in Ukraine. Uh, and on the way back, you know, got a chance to see a bit of Kiev and a bit of Lviv, which are two really beautiful old cities, uh, you know, particularly the the urban core. And, you know, before we get into some of the things you've addressed, I just want to say, you know, there's something terribly poignant about it uh, because you, you go to these beautiful old cities. They're a little bit, you know, showing their age a little bit more than uh, uh, some of their central and West European counterparts, but they are recognizably part of Europe. You know, there's the 
Austro-Hungarian imperial vibe, but they're just beautiful. The architecture is beautiful and they're filled with people outside going to cafes and restaurants, eating uh, ice cream, you know, trying to lead happy, creative lives. And then of course you see there aren't that many young men and the ones you see are frequently in uniform. And you see, you know, the, on the one hand, the mood felt a little bit more relaxed than the previous time I'd been there, but you see more posters, which are, you know, some are sort of recruiting posters, some are just morale builders. And, you know, then you stay at the hotel and this is, you know, you check and say, okay, here's where the bomb shelter is. And here's what the announcements are like. When, when we were in Kiev every night, there were, um, there were alerts. And you have to decide, am I going to run to the bomb shelter or just roll over and take my chances? The tragedy of that became clear. The the other thing, really poignant moment, which I want to mention on the way back through Lviv, which has a very interesting history, uh, particularly in Polish-Ukrainian relations, uh, about which I can say more. Um, We visited the Ukrainian military cemetery. uh, And... You know, this may sound morbid, but it's not. Uh, it, I think it's very important for people to see war cemeteries because they tell you a lot about the countries. And these Ukrainian war cemeteries, uh, of course, immaculately tended, but decorated with, you know, for, well, first they've got the pictures of the people who fell and decorated with, you know, beautiful flowers, usually the grave itself covered with a, a very carefully designed layout of gravel that's been painted bright blue and yellow, the colors of Ukraine, you know, carefully and and reverently treated. And, you know, in a way that tells you, okay, this is a society which feels every loss and which celebrates the individual. And you compare that with the barbarians on the other side, you know, who, frequently leave their dead to rot and couldn't care less actually about the human price of any of this. And, you know, it makes it clear what you're fighting for. It just, it's what a terrible thing you have to pay such a price for. So that's, um, that was that. I'll, uh, I'll just say a couple of quick things and then we can take it however you want to. While we're in the middle of this, the whole Prigozhin putsch came about Uh, I was traveling with some very, very senior Polish foreign policy experts and practitioners. Very interesting to get their take, which is quite different, I think, from the take uh, that we we had with our friend uh, Steve Sestanovich about what this means. You detected a lot of... My view is the Ukrainians had some idea this was coming because one of our intelligence meetings, the... uh, we asked about you know, what they thought about Prigozhin. This was, I think, on Friday. And, uh, you know, we noticed kind of a sly wink <laughs> uh, being exchanged. Um, but I think they are, you know, as, as I think they've been in the past, uh, confident without being cocky. But, but they are beginning to think about their future and then, then I really will stop and let you speak. I apologize for going. No, 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 not at all. Um, they, it, it is clear to them, and frankly, it is clear to me that NATO membership is absolutely essential. Uh, absolutely essential. It is not 
you know, one of the things I would, one of the many things I would criticize our government for is treating admission to NATO as the equivalent of the, you know, admissions to a very rigorous club, you know, where you have to show that your shoes are always shined and, you know, your shirt collars are always clean. And, you know, I mean, when President Biden said, you know, we're not going to make it easy for them, I thought that was truly one of the more idiotic things that he said, because, you know, honestly, the alternative, I, I this is something I believe, and not just because of things I've picked up, the alternative to NATO membership for them is nuclear weapons. Right. And we should think about what that means. And they can do it. They've got the scientists. They've got the expertise. Lord knows they've got the justification and the motivation. Sure. Uh, and that would not be a good world. So let's start there. Um, yeah, let's talk about um, maybe break the conversation into two, which is one is the future security arrangements, and then the second the prospects for the counteroffensive. You know, I was struck when reading Putin's discussion with the military bloggers that he had, I think it was on June 4th, in which he said, talks about the allies, uh, and he basically tells the military bloggers, you know, the allies are losing confidence in this. And of course, he says the Americans don't really have allies, they just have vassals which is probably, you know, one of the best examples of projection that I've ever... I was going to say, this is a case for the psychologists. But, you know, my, my, the thing that uh, hit me as I read that was, you know, if ever there was a case that shows that the Americans don't just have vassals, it's this. It's been the allies who have forced the Biden administration's hand constantly on provision of long-range artillery, on the provision of tanks, uh, with the leopards be becoming, you know, a forcing function for the Americans uh, to provide some Abrams tanks. F-16s, F-16s. Is, yep. is sort of the best. Long-range strike with yep. the storm shadow by the yep. by the British, and. You see that same dynamic beginning to play out here on the question of Ukrainians' future relationship with NATO. It's NATO allies who, I mean, in the past, it would have been the U.S. I mean, having been a participant in the early phases of NATO enlargement back in 1996 and 97, and, and even earlier, it was the U.S. that drove the pace of all this. Working closely with other allies, particularly the French and the British uh, and the Germans, but uh, definitely American, you know, conception and lead. Here, the Biden administration is being kind of, uh, you know, pushed forward by the Balts, the Nordics, uh, the British, even the French. Well, I, I, what I was going to say, Eric, is the, the big news is the French. I mean, the Balts have always been there. The East Europeans have already been there. The Brits, I think, have always been there. The Nordics are not particularly surprising. That the French now say that, this is a big deal because I think they were the ones who were, A, the most skeptical about NATO in general, uh, or at least President Macron was, and definitely some of the most skeptical about Ukraine joining it. And I think they've changed their tune because at the end of the day, uh, with all of their faults, you know, they're an analytical bunch and Macron is an analytical guy. And I think they've sort of thought this one through 
and come to the same conclusion that I have, which is you're not going to get stability in Europe until the Ukrainians are in NATO. And I think, you know, part of the problem is I think the, the Biden administration, in addition to timidity and telegraphing its fears and so on, they have somehow, you know, conceptualized NATO membership as, as I said, first joining an exclusive club, but as, as an act of charity and, and, you know, a favor that you're doing the poor Ukrainians. And that's completely the wrong way to think about it. The right way to think about it is we need to preserve the security and stability of Europe because that's where really big wars start. The really big ones. It's our leading trading, leading trading partner. And, and, and plus, plus all that. And the best way to ensure security and stability is to have Ukraine in NATO, because at the end of the day, the Russians have not been willing to attack NATO members. Right. You know, they've made it very clear they don't think Estonia really deserves to be a state. They could overrun that place in 24 hours, uh, although they would get a fight. And why don't they? And the answer is NATO. And the French have figured that one out. And hopefully at some point, the Biden administration will figure it out as well. I I will say one other thing to that is, you know, the Prigozhin thing broke. It seems to me that it's apparent that uh, that putsch attempt is actually going to reinforce the drive for NATO membership. And it will silence some of the critics of that for a while, and it will encourage those who are in favor of it. So I think, you know, it's worth talking about, you know, some of the mechanics here. First, there's, I think, the backstory, which is that, you know, there's a whole series of, of things that happened in Ukraine's past that, I think, give them some special uh, moral as well as strategic consideration. So, and this is something we've talked about uh, in the past on the podcast, which is the Ukrainians in 19, 1994 giving up their claim on the nuclear weapons that were left on Ukrainian territory after the Soviet Union broke up. Now, there were a lot of reasons why it made sense for them to do that. And I was partially involved, involved for part of the discussion before it, before it eventuated in the Budapest memorandum. Um, my successor in my job actually was Steve Pfeiffer, who we've had on the podcast talking about this. But the Ukrainians never really had physical control over the nuclear weapons. They still remained under the control of the, you know, the Russian strategic rocket forces the Soviet strategic rocket forces were now resident in the Russian Federation. It would have been extremely expensive for them to actually maintain those weapons. They also were not particularly well suited actually to function as a deterrent uh, against Russia because of the ballistic trajectories. So there were a lot of reasons why it was a card worth playing from their point of view for the economic and political benefits, but not really a claim that was worth vindicating. And I only say that because John Mearsheimer at the time advocated nuclear weapons for Ukraine and has argued subsequently that if only we'd followed his advice, you know, none of this you know, current unpleasantness would have happened. But the point, though, is that the political benefit that they got was assurances from the Russians, the Americans, the Brits, and later the French, that they you know, would not be threatened uh, with the use of force or nuclear weapons and that they would their territorial integrity, including Crimea, 
would be recognized by the the states and that, that these were not guarantees. That was a big part of the negotiation, which in in U.S. terms has a uh, legally binding quality to it, like the Article Five guarantee that you get as a member of NATO, or that we have in our mutual security treaties with the Republic of Korea and Japan um, and the Philippines uh, and Australia, um, but that they would be assured that the U.S. would do some. Of course, in 2014, the Obama administration did nothing uh, when this happened. And President Obama has recently been doing uh, interviews with Christian Amanpour, you know, trying to vindicate uh, that position of his, which it seems to me is ludicrous. I mean, it set the stage for uh, Putin to to do what he's done, not only in Crimea, but in uh, the Donbass and now in Ukraine as a as a whole. So <clears throat> the Ukrainians come at this with some understandable concerns that anything less than NATO membership is in the end of the day not going to cut it. Now, that does raise a question of, you know, sort of the timing of all this. I mean, they then also had the the 2008 episode in which the NATO alliance did not cover itself in a lot of glory at Bucharest when it refused to give membership action plan to Ukraine, but said that it would become a member of NATO, which had the, you know, it was the kind of worst of both worlds. It was the unintended consequence of which was to inflame Russian opinion, but without providing Ukraine with anything substantive in the way of, you know, greater security. So they're going to come at this understandably, you know, looking for something more serious. Now, the question in my mind is, you don't want to divide the alliance. So you have to find something that can unify the alliance on this point. It seems to me that the NATO secretary general, you know, has made a you know pretty good proposal, which is the summit at Vilnius ought to state unequivocally that there's no need for a membership action plan for Ukraine because Ukraine has now demonstrated it can operate NATO equipment. It can work together with the alliance. It has the will to fight uh, all, all the things that you would want, certainly has met the bar that Montenegro met when it, it became a member of NATO some years back. So uh, that seems to me to be a, sort of a no-brainer. No and I think the administration is okay with that. It seems, I, I think, it's not completely clear. But then there's the further question of like, what is the time frame in you know, which this is decided and how do you set that? And it seems to me that there's going to be a summit in Washington uh, next year, which will mark an anniversary of the alliance. I think that's exactly right. It's the 75th anniversary. That's the time to do it. I, you know, in the interim, I think one of the things that's uh, necessary, well, two things. At first, uh, very important to address the arguments of people who will oppose it. So one argument will be, well, you don't want to admit anybody to NATO whose borders are not recognized. Important to remember that Germany was admitted. Uh, when its eastern border had not been recognized and, right. and uh, agreed upon, and that which was true, by the way, uh, really until the end of communism, I mean, that was part of the part part of the deal. Uh, there, well, there's a war underway. Well, you you know, uh, we have uh, not only security guarantees to South Korea, but you know, a very large troop presence there, even though technically that war is still ongoing. I think. You know, there will obviously be some sort of lag between the end of hostilities, if indeed hostilities end, and full NATO membership. And my view on that one is that the there should be an indication that the concrete planning will be to 
have American, probably British, French, German, maybe German, we'll see, Polish uh, forces stationed in Ukraine. And to do that, you know, before NATO membership, the, the difficulty, I think the biggest difficulty is if you say, well, the war, you know, we'll, we'll do this when the shooting stops. It gives him an incentive to keep shooting forever. You, you, you incentivize, exactly. Uh, now, in this respect, I think the Prigozhin thing may actually work to our benefit. As, as I said, I, I think this is much, much worse for Putin than uh, some of our friends think. For what it's worth, that's also the Polish view, and I think it's the Ukrainian view as well. And although I don't doubt Putin's sincerity, so to speak, in his belief that, you know, Ukraine is part of Russia, it's a phony state and all that, there's no question in my mind that the preservation of his personal power trumps every other consideration of, you know, ideology or personal gain. And if he gets to the point where he feels the regime is in serious danger again, he is perfectly capable of making up some reason to stop the shooting, saying, you know, we've completed denazification of, of Ukraine. I mean, in fact, his uh, speaker, uh, Peskov, uh, already said that. Well, he said, well, you know, we have disarmed Ukraine because now they're using Western weapons. Right. Yeah, we've you destroyed know? their defense industry, which, by the way, is not true. Yeah, yeah which isn't true. Uh, they just put a very, very smart guy in, in charge Correct. of it, uh, the guy who'd been in charge of the rail system. So, you know, there are ways to deal with it. But, the, it, you know, once again, there'll be no substitute for American leadership. The key, as I kept on telling, I've told various allies, is not so much to push the United States as to pull the United States. You know, the, our basic instincts as a country, I think, are to help Ukraine. The administration will go along with things eventually, as they went along with, you know, tanks, and will go along with F-16s. But you got to just keep on tugging at them uh, to get them get them over the line. Inter alia, you're saying that Prigozhin uh, episode should help us. I, you know, I should say that, you know, I have a very simple-minded view of what happened there, it, and it's guided by the higher naivete which is bearing in mind that both Prigozhin and Putin are um, liars. You know, I, I think uh, in this instance, sort of, we probably should take Prigozhin more or less at his word. I mean, I think what was happening here was, uh, and this is the point you've made in your piece in the Atlantic, you know, if you really want to understand this, you got to understand the Godfather. These are, you know, mafia families. This is all in the spirit of our, mentor, uh, the late Alvin Bernstein. These were mafia clans. Shoigu and Gerasimov had had about enough of Prigozhin's criticisms of them and his glory, you know, seeking for being the, you know, deliverer of the great victory, the great Pyrrhic victory at Bakhmut. And so they wanted to subordinate, as uh, Steve Sasanovich said, when we talked with him about this, the Wagner group to the uh, Ministry of Defense. I think Prigozhin wasn't sure because of his, you know, connections to Putin, where Putin really stood on this. And so this was really an effort to sort of flush him out. Uh, and he probably was encouraged by some people, perhaps, you know, in the, in the system that, you know, hey, you know, we'll back you if you make a play. 
And I think as our friend Phillips O'Brien says, you know, it then got away from him. It was sort of catastrophic success. He probably expected to be opposed at some point and that he would be, there would be a point where he'd stop and there would be a negotiation. He'd extract some concessions. But instead, he found himself approaching the gates of Moscow with 5,000 guys and realized he couldn't take the city. And I think he, he kind of t- you know, shocked himself when he realized that he had actually maybe exposed the frailty of the whole regime. And, and of course, when Putin came out on Saturday morning and accused him of being a traitor, I think that probably brought him up short, too. I mean, the fact is that Putin said nothing and was silent all day Friday and over Friday night into Saturday morning. My, that's my take on this. This is like just, uh, you know, um, to the into the comic aspect of this was uh, it's sort of like uh, springtime for Hitler, right? In, in the Nathan Lane, Matt Broderick uh, movie. You know, the, I think that may be true, but I guess I, and again, I, I may have been affected by hanging around with uh, East Europeans who uh, tend, I think, to believe much more in the kind of serious mafia quality of all this, where there are always conspiracies and stuff going on. And and I guess um, my feeling on this one is I cannot imagine Prigozhin being able to do this or to accomplish what he did without at least the tacit cooperation of some very senior people. Oh yeah. Let's just take, let's just take the fact, I mean, you, you don't just get up one day and drive with, you know, a 5,000 man, military formation, 780 kilometers, by the way, shooting down half a dozen helicopters right. and a command and control aircraft along the way. And that had to take planning. I cannot believe that, you know, the Russians would not have penetrated Wagner, at least nominally with FSB agents. I mean, there are spies within spies um, all over the security establishment in Russia. So then you got to say, well, why wasn't Putin told that, hey, there's something fishy going on? I, I the fact I, I think it's established as a fact, although I'm not 100 percent sure you know, that Putin fled. He ran away. Yes. I mean, that that does seem to be the case. That's a tell. I mean, it, it raises the question, though, of what made Prigozhin lose his nerve. Well, so I mean, I can give you some of the theories I've heard, which is. First, that he may have gotten out over his skis, it may have gone further than people thought but that he was offered a very attractive deal, probably including a large payout of money and assurances by people who could actually protect him. I mean, one version that I have heard, which goes so far as to say Putin is already sort of a uh, figurehead, that that he has lost uh, most of his real power. Now, I, I don't see the evidence of that, Although it does seem to me that he's been fatally weakened by this. Uh, I mean, just the, the fact of this happening, you know, and I, I understand the, the other arguments, but the idea that this has somehow made him tougher and more resilient, I don't think so. I, and I think what it is going to do is, I mean, he is clearly kind of paranoid uh, at the moment. And he probably does, he's probably asking himself exactly the same questions that you and I are, but, you know, where you and I giggle about it, you know, for him, this is quite literally life and death. Sure. And so he has to be, and he, and the, you know, the fact that it's very striking that Lukashenko's portrayal of this makes Putin look very bad. And Lukashenko is not a careless guy. And, you know, for him to say that, that 
it tells you something. Last thing I say on this, by the way, I you know, we're used to treating Prigozhin as a buffoon. I'm not so sure that he's a buffoon. I mean, he's coarse, he's br- brutal, he's it's, a terrible, terrible human being. He's a criminal. He's a career criminal. He's a criminal, but he's a talented criminal. And, you know, Wagner, the professional part of Wagner, set aside the convicts who were you know, just there to kind of draw Ukrainian fire yeah. till they were killed. Cannon fodder. Uh, but the, the the core of Wagner is actually a very effective, you know, by Russian standards, very effective. Among the most most professional and, yeah. and you know, yeah. uh, effective forces and they so, have. You know, he, um, I think he, somebody who built that operation is probably not entirely a fool. What, one other angle on all this, just as long as we're talking Prigozhin, is I, here's the thing that I wonder. This guy has spent a lot of time on the front line. He has ordered lots of atrocities. He has undoubtedly seen lots of atrocities. He's seen piles of bodies. He's perpetrated some of them. Own men. Yeah. And I bet you he's not entirely right in the head as a result. Could be. Could well be. You know, I mean, post-traumatic stress is a real thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I think once somebody gets deeply, deeply into the world of slaughtering other human beings and being slaughtered in return. You know, particularly if, I mean, it's not like he had such a great life before that, nine years in a Russian jail as a kind of being low on the criminal hierarchy. That was probably not a great experience. So you're probably dealing with somebody who has a few screws loose, even if he's pretty capable. Let's turn to the, I mean, that's a, good segue into turning to the counteroffensive. I mean, the the Wagner forces, you know, sort of accomplished their purpose as the, you know, perhaps most effective offensive fighting force that the, you know, Russians have. I mean, I'm not sure how, and they, they were, he pulled out of Bakhmut, but I'm not sure how much the, you know, the Russians needed him for this phase, which is largely, you know, on the, the strategic defense but how do you see this all playing out? And what did you hear in, in Ukraine that would give you some insight into you know where this is all headed? So, so the Ukrainians don't share much, and I don't really expect them to. I, I sort of sense that, you know, w- would they like to take Crimea and Donbass in this um, in this offensive? Yes, but I think they're real. They will consider it a success if they break the land bridge. In other words, the you know the uh, as I'm sure our listeners know, the supply lines that the Russians have run essentially east-west, relatively close to the coast. They had to pull them back once we began giving HIMARS to the uh, to the Ukrainians. If they can uh, cut those rail and road links then the Russians are basically unable to uh, resupply their forces around Kherson, their forces north of Crimea. They'll probably be able to get in range of the Kerch Bridge and take that down. So all of a sudden you can't supply Crimea at all. That would, that would be a major success. And I think they think they're going to get that. Now, the, the one reason why they probably, you know, I think, one of the questions is, do the Russians have any operational level reserves left? That is to say, when, you know, when you're fighting these kind of massive breakthrough operations, the sound 
defensive doctrine is you have lots of counterattack forces ready at both the tactical level and sort of the close-in fight, but then you have operational level reserves, thousands of troops with tanks and all that ready to launch a counterattack once your enemy has kind of broken through, but has taken losses and is sort of disorganized by the act of breaking through. That's when you counterattack with your well-organized forces that have been held in reserve. And the indications seem to be that the Russians don't have that. I may be wrong about that, but it doesn't look as though they have it. In part because their forces have been so depleted by by Bakhmut and the attrition that the Ukrainians have inflicted on them in that that fight. And, and, And they're also maintaining a very long line. And in some ways, blowing the Novokovka Dam may help them less than they thought, because as that flooded area dries out in the summer heat, that now becomes an area that the Ukrainians may try to to drive through. I believe it's also uh, destroyed a number of the defensive fortifications that they built. Yes, it did. It did, and they didn't tell their own people about it. Now, there's another fallout, I think, of the Prigozhin thing in all this. If people are uncertain about what's going on in Moscow, that will affect the the senior general officers on the ground in uh, Ukraine. They'll be, you know, wondering who's in, who's out. Is Shoigu really going to stick around? Is Grasimov really going to stick around? You know, is there? And then, you know, to the extent that Prigozhin landed a punch on the very rationale for the war, it's going to affect. Uh, soldier morale, it's going to affect general officers. Which is low to begin with. I mean, the morale of the Russian exactly. forces have been terrible. And I am sure that, look, if the Ukrainians have been good at one thing, it's information warfare. I am sure that the Ukrainians are kind of saturating telegram channels and stuff like that uh, with this, including, all you know, all you really need to do is just make sure everybody gets to listen to Prigozhin. And so as a result, I think what the Ukrainians are doing is they're kind of probing at a whole bunch of different points. Uh, they're hoping to find a weak spot and then they're going to try to fight a breakthrough battle. And who knows? You know, I it, I mean, in all this, we're swimming in such a, a fog of uncertainty. Um, but I'm, you know, I continue to be optimistic that they will, they'll be able to do it. The, the one thing that, that annoys me is when people say, okay, it's been two weeks, you know, yeah. this thing hasn't succeeded. Right. It's failed. You know, people should learn some military history. It, breaking through at El Main took a while. Breaking through the Gustav line took a while. Breaking through the Siegfried line took a while. That's the nature of modern combined arms warfare, you know, particularly when the other side is dug in a lot. Right. To that point, it does seem that the Ukrainians have taken some losses, which, again, not unanticipated, but harder for them to bear personnel losses in particular than than the Russians who have a manpower advantage, although maybe a wasting asset given the attrition that's been inflicted and the task that they have to fulfill with uh, along that long line with you know, depleted forces, as you were, were saying, Elliot. Did you get some sense of how the Ukrainians were thinking about about that? I mean, it's clear they haven't committed the bulk of the brigades that have been trained? So they haven't committed the bulk of the brigades. I'm not sure that the Russians have as much of a manpower advantage 
as one might think. I mean, absolute numbers, yeah, but they, you know, they've not been willing to draft people in, you know, to, to really draft people in places like Petersburg and Moscow. He reiterated that, by the way, um, in the talk with military bloggers that they weren't going to do mobilization. Look, that absolutely, it, it affected our morale during Vietnam. So, you know, it, it, I'm sure it affects Russian morale. The Ukrainians, on the other hand, get to have their best and brightest as part of this thing. And, you know, that makes a huge difference. I mean, if you were to ask me, why why is the Israeli military been as good as it is? The answer is not necessarily because of the generals. In fact, I'd say usually not. It's because they are tapping the best and the brightest of their society. And you pay a price when you do that in a all-out war, but you also get tremendous benefits. And I think uh, the Ukrainians the Ukrainians have that. So, you know, I think the thing is, everybody feels it. Everybody knows people who've fallen. Uh, like I said, there are memorials wherever you go. The war's omnipresent. But I think, that, you know, the from a manpower point of view, the Ukrainian quality is hard. This is a citizen-soldier army. So we should think about it as the way you think about the World War II Army, uh, which was also a citizen-soldier army. Um, I think their biggest challenge, I'd say the biggest challenge in the breakthrough is, you know, they've obviously gotten tactical training from us and the British and others. Um, you know, the, the open question is whether they can conduct operational-level maneuver. That is to say, when you're talking about an operation which might have tens and tens of thousands of people, engage, which is a complicated and difficult art. The advantage that they have, though, and I think it's important uh, for our readers, for our listeners to think about this, is, you know, in general, um, and Clausewitz talks about this, going on the offense is usually good for morale. You know, just sitting there and taking it, as they did around Bakhmut, is extremely difficult. Feeling that you're on the offense and that as you do, you're not only liberating your homeland, but you're paying back, you know, the people who've killed and kidnapped and tortured and raped uh, their way through your country. That's a motivator. And I, I think that increasingly that advantage and motivation is going to tell over the course of the summer. So let me ask you about some military equipment uh, issues. One thing that seems to have slowed the Ukrainian um, advance has been rotary wing aircraft on the part of the Russians, the so-called alligator helicopters, KA-52s. We just, you know, we just saw Prigozhin shoot down six of them. So it's not like these things can't yeah. be taken down. So is there something equipment wise that the Ukrainians are missing? I mean, I know they have a shortage of, of shore ads of short range air defense, but is there an operational issue? My understanding of that one is this is a result of having put a lot of effort into the air defense of Ukrainian cities. Right. And so sort of mid-range kinds of systems like NASAM and IRIS-T. Patriot. You know, which you, you would want to have are, uh, you know, they are, are being held to defend cities. 
I mean, helicopters, you know, the other thing is the Russian helicopters do have these long range standoff munitions. And if they are tactically competent, you know, the, uh, they'll be just kind of popping up briefly, get, you know, get the advantage of height, fire a uh, missile and duck down again. You know, it's like anything else. It's a, for every measure, there's a countermeasure. What, I think one misconception, though, is, well, the Ukrainians don't have air superiority, so therefore they can't conduct an effective offensive. And this is, this is I think, one of the ways in which people invoke history in a misleading way. The, the way to think about that, I, I would say, is not, you know, it, it's anachronistic to think of it in terms of, are there fixed-wing airplanes flying over the battlefield? The question is, are the functions of air power being exercised? And if you think, you know, the reconnaissance function of air power, well, a lot of that is done from space now, which didn't exist in World War II, or from drones of various kinds. Precision fires in the enemy's rear areas, well, that's not people dropping bombs anymore. That's HIMARS and long-range artillery and uh, those kinds of systems. And, you know, in between, uh, everybody's got drones. I mean, but everybody. And so nobody's going to have the kind of air superiority that you had at D-Day. Now, would it be better if the Iranians had more? Absolutely. You know, is it a crying shame that we didn't begin the training programs and the equipment programs for F-16s? Months earlier. You know, uh, you know, six months or a year ago? Absolutely. Uh, would it be helpful if you had F-16s up there with long-range air-to-air missiles? Unquestionably. But, but you know, it's it's contested airspace, and that's going to be the norm. I mean, it's if ISIS can attack our, some of our bases in Syria with swarms of drones, not onesies and twosies, but swarms of drones, well, you know, states are going to have that capacity too. So, um, yeah, so I think it's, it's, a bit, it's a bit up in the air. I wanted to stay on the uh, question of long-range fires for a second. Uh, so the Brits have provided, uh, you know, um, the storm shadow uh, for the Ukrainians, which has given them a long-range precision of uh, fires. We still hear, and I just heard it recently in the Pentagon, you know, well, we can't give them attack and we don't have enough ourselves. You know, we have we have to keep them for our own stocks. You know, you've heard you've heard me and you've seen me in print make the argument for the depickum for the cluster munition, yeah. um, which we have you know about three million rounds of in stock, which we'll never use, because some undersecretary back in two thousand eight changed the policy to say we would move from a three percent dud rate to a one percent dud rate. I mean, Russians have already flooded the whole area with you know, munitions with you know, cluster munitions with 30% dud rate. So the place is littered with unexploded ordnance. It's going to be a massive cleanup effort after the war. Where do you think we stand on these things? And what do you think the prospects uh, are for? So I think, you know, we'll eventually move on. I mean, the, the argument about ATACMS is fatuous for several reasons. First, you can manufacture more of these things. We export them to other countries. Secondly, you know, some portion of our ATACMS inventory, and there are about 1,500 of these things all told, is dedicated to Europe. Well, 
you know, wouldn't it make sense to let the Iranian, the Ukrainians have 30 of them, let's say, in order to defeat the Russians, who we're planning on using them against anyway? You have an opportunity to defeat the, the Russian army, for God's sake, and to make these guys combat ineffective for quite some time to come. So why wouldn't you expend it now instead of hoarding it for the future? I mean, and again, just to be clear, what, what would you do with Atakamas? Well, there are really two things that you could do. One is you could take out the Kerch Bridge, which is one of, you know, they're basically two causeways to Crimea from the north uh, into Ukraine. And then there's this, uh, this one from Russia proper. You can take down the Kerch Bridge and you can also probably shut down uh, Russian air bases in Crimea, which would be a big deal. And as you say, I mean, dual purpose improved conventional munitions. So basically these are cluster munitions, which will do a job on vehicles as well as on people. And entrenched fortifications. And, you know, the the dud rate is like just a bit over 1%. It's not, this is not 10%. And you would think it's the Ukrainians country, for goodness sakes, if they're willing to tolerate it, why are we squeamish? And it's just part of the, uh, the only word I can use is shameful timidity of uh, the administration. It's like they don't, they're not taking seriously. Yeah, there's a war going on. And if you decide not to give this to people, you know, lots of Ukrainian young men and women are going to die who don't have to die. It's as if that doesn't, Get through. Part of the argument is, you know, uh, even though the United States is not party to the cluster munitions convention, our British, French, and German allies are, and that this would uh, presumably not go down very well with European publics. I mean, I- interestingly, the bureaucratics of this inside the Biden administration, as I understand it, are a little bit unusual in the sense that. It's the State Department that is raising the biggest objections here, as I understand it. You know, there was a recent story that there's now a relook going on. And apparently, uh, Jake Sullivan has privately told some people that he is not necessarily opposed to this. So, I mean, my suspicion is we will get there, you know, probably later this summer and and provide him. But again, you know, the administration just seems to be constantly kind of a, a day late and a dollar short. A lot of this, I think, is just bureaucratic stupidity. You know, we have a policy, we cling to it, and then we conjure up, um, you know, there's there's a great uh, old piece of military wisdom, do not take counsel of your fears. And that's what they tend to do. And, you know, the idea that, oh, you know, really British support for Ukraine is going to snap if you use uh, cluster munitions and presumably along the way say, this is why these are very valuable. These are why these are necessary. I mean, at this point, I, I really don't think European, do we really think that European public opinion will kind of spin around after everything that's gone on and said, oh, well, if they're using cluster munitions, then we might as well let the Russians take most of Ukraine. Right. I mean, it's just ridiculous. I couldn't agree. It's just couldn't agree more. There's a level of absurdity to it that's, uh, and I, and you know, I, if I sound uh, Techy, it's because you know you and I have both heard these arguments so many times, and I've really come to the conclusion it's just a cover for cowardice. I really am, and it and it and it comes 
and maybe I, I do feel this particularly keenly after seeing these memorials. And they were everywhere. I mean, I walk into the lecture hall where I'm going to speak, and there's the name of all the um, recent graduates and faculty who've fallen in this war. I mean, it's ubiquitous. And when we when we decide to be super scrupulous and super cautious, it means there'll be more more names on that wall, and there'll be more beautiful graves yep. in places like Lviv. And it's and you, I just have a feeling that the people making those decisions aren't thinking concretely about what that all means. Well, Elliot, um, I'm going to give you the last word. Anything else you want to add after um, after that peroration? Uh, so I, yeah, I mean, one of the most interesting things about all this is for me has been learning about the history of Polish Ukrainian relations, which are, have not always been easy at all. You know, of course, parts of Ukraine have been belonged to Poland, but the recent history, particularly during World War II is pretty, pretty hard. So in next year, 2024 is going to be the uh, the anniversary of the Volnia massacres. This is a set of massacres that happened in 1943-44, which, which members of the Ukrainian national movement basically, you know, seeing that the war was going, how the war was going to end, wanted to drive out Polish populations in what's now Western Ukraine. And it was accompanied with massacres on both sides. I mean, it brutal and horrible. Uh, I mean, and we're talking about not just with guns, but with shovels and scythes and all that. And there's, there's history there. What I am very struck that the Poles, as much as one can, have moved past that. And that, you know, two peoples who had quite bitterly opposed each other uh, at different points, you know, have really reconciled. Um, I think the, the Poles in a very statesmanlike way, actually at the, right, really, right around the end of communism, recognized their Eastern border, which, you know, I could have understood if they would have said, well, hey, look, a lot of this was stolen by the Russians and given to Ukraine, which would be true. And they didn't, they just said, okay, that's it. Um, and, uh, and they moved on. So I think that's, you know, first it, it's a reminder that, um, well, I'll, I'll tie it to the lecture I gave it. I, I quoted uh, Faulkner's famous line that the past isn't, the pa past isn't dead. It isn't even past. And, and, you know, I, it, what that, teaches me is uh, the past, the past is never past. That's true. But sometimes it's dead. And sometimes people can move on beyond it. And that doesn't mean you forget things um, and, you know, that you don't commemorate them and you don't contemplate their meaning, but that it is possible to move forward and that one has to move forward. And I think that's, a, that's actually kind of a hopeful thing in the middle of this terrible time. Well, the, uh, the idea that we don't have to be prisoners of our history is a, a great note to end on and um, great to have you back and look forward to more episodes of Shield of the Republic with you. As ever. <laughs>